We are continuing our study in the biblical doctrine of sanctification. And we need to keep in mind the things that God has given to us. And what we have been looking at, as we look at this doctrine, we're really into an application of how sanctification is used in the person's life in which they are able to walk according to the word of God. That the concept of church discipline, which is to simply bring you back within the right practice of the church, is met. That's all it is. Uh, The idea is not that we hang you like a pinata and beat on you with sticks in the church so that it's a lot of fun. I've never known church discipline to be fun. Uh, It's not any more fun than counseling. Sometimes counseling can be a very hard thing to do in the life of the Christian. You can get a lot of opposition. You can get a lot of people who say that you did or didn't do things of which, unless you record the sessions, you would not be able to defend yourself, of which most churches today are recording all of their counseling sessions now uh, in order to defend themselves biblically because of the amount of lawsuits that have been filed. So the question is, how do we approach this question of walking in the will of God. The Bible says this is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians, your sanctification. More than anything else, you were saved for one purpose only, and that is to be sanctified by God in the walk of your Christian profession, setting you aside from the world, though still in the world. But the ultimate goal is to give God the glory. A lot of people don't have this doctrine enumerated the way that we've talked about it. And so they don't really see the glory of God as being really a part of this Christian walk. But we as reformers, Presbyterians, Puritans in particular as we are, we do see this as our chief end. Our chief end is the glory of God. And we are to, by faith, trust him, rest upon him for the rest of our Christian walk as we live here in this world. Now, our text that we've been looking at is Hebrews chapter 12. If you will, beginning at verse 14, an ah, familiar passage. We have seen this over and over again. I hope that it is driving the principle home to you. Pursue peace. The word pursue means go after it. Seek to claim it into your life in essence. Pursue peace with all people, not with just some, but with all people. 
and holiness. That is, living out the separated life that you've been called as a Christian to live away from sin and unto God. Or you're not going to do it perfectly. We've said that. But the principle is, that's what you're going to pursue. Holiness of life. Without which no one shall see the Lord. If these are not your goals in life, I will guarantee you, you've got a really rude awakening the day that you die and wake up spiritually before the throne of God in judgment. Because he has said this is his standard. We are to pursue peace with all people. We are to be a loving, kind, courteous. Now, does that mean we throw out the law of God and if someone comes to burn our house down, we don't defend ourselves? Of course not. There are always exceptions in these things. But that's only fulfilling the law of God. The right of being able to protect <coughs> our lives before God. But unless something else is taking place like that, our goal is to pursue peace and holiness. He says, looking diligently, that is, at your life, lest anyone would fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, we have taken a very important look at this doctrine of sanctification. Consider what we have uh, dealt with in this. We have defined sanctification, first of all. We have talked about what the concern of sanctification is. What is its chief goal? What's it supposed to do in your life as a Christian? We've talked about that. Who is the agent of sanctification? We've talked about that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit being applied to you <coughs> through the application of Christ's death wherein you have been renewed by the power of God. What is the means of sanctification? We talked about that last Lord's Day. <coughs> Excuse me. Having a lot of sinus drainage today. Now what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to talk about the basic nine directives in the life of a believer of what we are to do in mortifying sin in our life because that's really the biggest part of the battle. How do you mortify sin? That becomes the question. And then once you've killed sin, what goes in its place? Of course, it is putting on the righteousness of Christ according to the way the word of God expresses it to us. So I want to talk to you about these nine directives. These are just things that are practical to your life. How can you kill sin in your life 
become a sanctified saint, walk in the righteousness and the commandment of God. First, we must consider the sin which is most perplexing to us. Seek how deeply rooted it is and what dangerous symptoms accompany it. You need to take on that sin which is the most perplexing. That one sin that comes around time and time again. Whether it is some <coughs> excuse me, violation of one of the commandments expressed in perversion, expressed in drinking too much, whatever that may be, being a person who is not a peace, who is not doing what is right, living us apart from the world. He's got to know which sin has perplexed him. And we all have that. There are times that you will, throughout your Christian walk, say, you know, if I could do away with this one sin, I wouldn't be a very bad person at all. Because it is so perplexing to your life, it seems to occupy the fullness of your life. And so you see it more than you see the other sins which you don't necessarily partake of regularly. Now when a sin, in particular the besetting sin, which is what we call it, of your life, when it has laid long in your heart, corrupting, festering, cankering, it brings a soul to a woeful condition. It rots and roots out your heart. It makes you what you don't really want to be if the Spirit of God is in you. That's its purpose. Sin is meant to destroy your life. It is to seek to get you to trash all that you claim about Christ and walk from it. King David said, My words stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I think we can identify with King David saying. One of the things we can identify with King David is he's the only man in the Bible that we're told literally has the heart of God, i.e., he is after God's own heart. He wants to glorify God. We'd all like to have that moniker above our name. We'll never know that. But King David did. But the beauty of King David is you get to see the king in all his splendor. Not only the good and great things that he has for God, but also the sinful acts and perversions which destroy his life and God punishes him for his foolishness, which is why he says, my words stink. And they are corrupt because 
of my foolishness. I am not doing what God told me to do. So find the sin in your life that is most perplexing and work on putting it to death. <clears throat> Get it out of your life. Show that you will not let that sin master you in your Christian walk. Second of the nine directives. We need to get a clear and abiding sense upon our mind of the guilt, danger, and evil of all sin. We don't think about this the way we ought to. Hebrews 3, 13 and 15 says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That is the rebellion of the fathers in Israel. Deceitfulness of sin. Sin is not only pleasurable, it's deceitful. And the sad part of it is, we just kind of go along with it. Why? Because we don't really consider what sin is doing to our life. It's betraying us. Beware that your conscience has not been so seared with a hot iron that hot iron of sin that we experience little guilt in our life. When sin has gone long enough, you will not experience the guilt that it originally had in your life. It becomes familiar to you. You learn to live at peace with sin, which is such a dangerous thing. You no longer see sin as an enemy, but more of a friend. <clears throat> but unfortunately, it is an enemy of God. And God wants it rooted out of your life. Thus, we need to be very sensitive to the work of of the Holy Spirit. Now, getting sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit comes by doing a couple of things. One, naturally reading the Word of God and understanding how the Spirit of God works in us. Not just historically, how it works in us. And secondly, through prayer and communication with God, which takes place by the power of the Spirit of God, which again makes us sensitive to the work of His Spirit. And so that's another thing that you need to be doing in your life. How much time are you spending thinking about these things? Asking God to make you sensitive when there is sin that pops up in your life, that you might kill it, get rid of it, 
abhorrent. Well, the third thing, we need to load our conscience with the guilt of our besetting sin. We can only do this by bringing the word of God into view of our conscience. That is, we must keep the thoughts of Christ in our mind after him. That can only be done by reading the word of God. Therein is where God reveals his thoughts to us. These are the thoughts of Christ. This is where your heart, your soul, your spirit becomes very dependent upon being sensitive to the fact that there is a besetting sin trying to destroy our life. We must bring the word of God into view here. The light of the word exposes our sins. I assure you of that. Romans 7. Paul says in verse 11 through 12, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law of God is good. The law of God is just. It is holy. It is set aside. That is our standard of measurement to our sanctification. But he said sin doesn't promote holiness. Rather, because there is a commandment, and there are ten, naturally, when sin does its work, what does it do? It deceives you, and it wants to kill you. That's what Paul said. It has no other purpose, which is why it must be rooted out. Fourth, we need to get a constant longing and breathing after the deliverance of the power of sin. We got to really want this to be gone. We got to really want to live a holy, godly life. Very hard to do. But we must not allow our hearts to ever be, ever be content with the present state of sin in our lives. How can you? How can you say I'm a Christian and yet you're comfortable with sin? Sin has mastery over you. How can that happen? I'm telling you, it cannot. If you have indwelling sin, sin that is a besetting sin that continues over and over and over again, you need to look at your profession of faith. Fifth, <clears throat> we need to consider that some sins are more prone 
to our natural character. Depending on who you are, some sins may be very prone to who you are. You you have a love for money. You have a love for alcohol. You have a love for perversion. Whatever that case may be, it's natural to your character. (laughs) And it's important for us to realize, in particular, that this is something that you have with you before you're saved. Usually, it is one of the great things you do. You're prone to be a thief. You're prone to do a lot of things. In particular, though, certain things you're more prone to do because they're according to the very nature of who you are. Some men may be caught up in alcohol. And in order for them to escape the ravages of alcohol in their life, where it has ravaged their life and destroyed their family and their own health and their life, when they become a Christian, doesn't mean they could not drink a wine. But the answer is, this was a very serious sin before you got saved. And it is a sin that is really close to the present state of your natural character. Got to be careful. You've got to be careful. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know your strengths. You've got to know your weaknesses. Because I guarantee you those sins will come back to try to control you. Don't ever be content with sin in your life. Fifth, we need to consider that some sins are more prone to our natural character that is, particular sins might become much more easier and deceitful and you must keep our hearts and our minds under subjection, which is what I was supposed to read the verse. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body, says Paul, and I bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I preach against sin, and yet sin becomes my master, and I am disqualified. That is the importance of knowing how sin is deceptive in your life. I've known men over the years that have had major problems in their life. Real besetting sins. Some areas that 
that really need to be. And for them to be able to be sensitive to the fact that that is more toward their nature, they had to be more cautious. They would avoid the occasion of temptation. Temptation isn't a sin, but temptation is what is trying to lead you to sin. To break the law of God in your walk with him. And so it is, we have this duty to be mindful of what sins. And you know, the sad thing of it is, a lot of people, when you say this kind of thing, well, you must put sin to death. They really don't see it as that. What they really see it as is, I need to take this sin, I need to hide it under my coat so you cannot see it, and when the time is right, I need to pull it back out and, as it were, play with it. Get involved with it. And it snares them. Why? It's pleasurable for a season. You see, it ain't that bad. It is that bad. And we all struggle with that because none of us have been perfected yet. We haven't been glorified yet. And so we can't allow our lives to be governed by sin. And we must know who we are. We must know where our failings are. And if you've got a sinful area of your life that you don't have under control, you need to get it under control. And if you had this sinful area before you became a Christian, most certainly you've got to watch for it after becoming a Christian. That means even if you were a person that, let's say, for example, you were an alcoholic, God saved you from your sins, but in order to go to work, you would have to walk down the one street that all the bars are on in your little town. You would need to find a different route. Maybe sometime later in life, that would not be the case, but when you're a young Christian, You need to avoid the known occasions of which sin can come from temptation. That's why Paul says, you know, you can have Christian liberty. You want to drink a little wine, fine. But if you've got someone who's offended, you don't offer him wine. If he says, man, if I drink wine, I was an alcoholic. If I drink wine, I, I could possibly get back on him. I need to stay away from it. 
It's been horrible to my life. It ruined my marriage. It ruined my life. It ruined my employment. I could not work. I could not live. I could not love in the way that God wanted me to live my life. So you need to avoid it. And we need to avoid them. Setting them up to sin. Our intent may not be to do that very thing, but yet we do. We have got to get this sin under control. Well, sixth, we need to be conscious of what brings forth our sin. You need to think about this. I doubt that many of you have ever sat down and said, well, exactly what gets me back into this cotton? You know, a besetting sin is something that it's called that for a reason. <clears throat> Keeps popping up. You know, I, how in the world do I do this sin over and over again? I mean, aren't there some sins you just go, boy, if I could get rid of that one, that's the most annoying sin. It's there, and I think I get rid of it, and it's there again, and I think I get rid of it, and it's there again. How do I get rid of it? Well, to do that, you need to be really conscious of what brings forth sin. Thus, we must not give occasion to the flesh. Give it opportunity to be consumed in sin. The Apostle Paul says, in Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, let us walk properly as in the day. Not in rivalry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, for the flesh to fulfill its lust, its desires. Now, if you really want to be a good Reformed Puritan, it means learning to put that sin to death in your life. I was raised in fundamentalism. And whenever you had sinful problems, they would say, well, you need to go do this. You need to go on, the, on visitation. You need to run a Sunday school bus. You see, what you need to do is you need to do things as somehow you're meriting righteousness by works that you do. Can't be done that way. Now, do you have a duty and a responsibility to flee those temptations and occasions of the flesh? Yes. That's not going to make you a saint. Doing good works is not running a Sunday school bus route or doing this, substituting things out in order to try to crowd your life in a way that you're so busy you won't think about this. No, I got news for you. You need to think about it and you need to conquer it through the power of the Spirit of God who lives with us. We do that by making no 
provision for the flesh. We refuse to participate in that sin. Well, how do we do that? Number seven. We need to strike out at the first act of sin and temptation. We need to attack it. Yeah, I know what's happening. I'm being set up to be tempted to make provision for the flesh. What am I going to do? The scripture says, I will hide thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Think about it. First thing you've got to do is hide the word of God in your heart, i.e., how to spill yourself, fill your mind, fill who you are with the word of the living God. God says this is evil. I must avoid that evil. And when that evil comes, I must strike out at it. So how do I do that? First, memorize scripture in the area of your besetting sin. If it's drunkenness, then look at all the scriptures that forbid drunkenness and strike out. Make that a part of your life and your thinking. Fill your life with that knowing this sin is going to come back around again and again trying to conquer me and destroy my profession and credibility in the faith. Strike out because you have memorized scripture in the area of your besetting sin. Secondly, seek God in prayer immediately. So that he would remove the temptation. I find when you're thinking about what the word of God says. And you go and you pray to God to remove the temptation. The temptation loses its appeal. But if you don't know scripture about your besetting sin. And if you don't seek God out you're not going to strike out at your temptation. You're going to acquiesce to it. You're going to embrace it in your life. And that we can never do. God says no. There is no way that can happen. Well, the eighth thing you need to really do, and this is really now getting down to the heart of a real problem we have in evangelicalism today. Eighth, we need to consider the majesty of God. God has been put in such a way that 
the world doesn't know the true God. Many of our churches don't preach the true God. They don't realize how much God hates sin. And sin is not something that exists apart from you, but it is the thing you do when you violate his moral law. You remember when Joseph was in Potiphar's house? You remember Potiphar's wife? Joseph had become a very powerful man in the kingdom, second only to the king, and the king giving power over everything but his home. Potiphar's wife, she has a plot. And it's a plot to get him to violate the law of God by trying to get him to go to bed with her. What does Joseph say? Well, I can't do this because of the king. I mean, look what all he's done for me. That ain't going to solve the problem for him. You know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with a a better looking girl than you. (laughs) I always like that. You know, when men fall into perversional sin, married men, they don't trade up. They always trade down. I guess that's the plight of sin. You think they're attractive and the rest of the world goes, what in the world could have that man been thinking? That happened to some of the men that we know from TV. One after another, they kept falling left and right. And when you looked at the women that they were trading in, their wives were, you're going, what in the world is going on? You know, in a way you could say, and you can't justify it, well, if it was a Christy Brinkley, I could be tempted. I've never seen one of them go for a Christy Brinkley. They're, they go after some of the most homeliest women I've ever seen. And maybe that's the blindness of sin and that kind of perversion. I don't know, but I know this. This is what motivated Joseph. He said it oh so well. How can I sin against my God? That's the only thing that's going to keep you out of sin. You are so attuned to the God of creation and redemption. You do not. You do not want to disappoint him in your life by violating his law. How can I sin? And that's the point. It's sin against my God. How can I do that? And that's what you've got to ask in your life. 
when that besetting sin comes, you've got to strike out at it and say, I can't sin against God. He's done too much for me. He gave his son to die for me. And I'm just going to trample underfoot the blood of Christ? Cannot be done. Do you really think that you're going to do that to God and he's not going to make you pay? We always trade down for sin. It's always the less. It's never more. And that's the sad part of it. Satan is sending people to hell through all the sin that he has brought within this world, through the temptation of Adam and his original sin. He's done it, and they simply sell themselves out as cheap as you can go. You're not getting a white chariot horse ride into hell. You're just being dumped out of an old bucket. They're just walking over and pouring you out and down you go. Nothing first class about it. We don't really see the problem. We don't understand the effects of the problem. Our churches are no longer preaching what those effects are. Why God would be offended by that? Because of his holiness, his righteousness, his demand, the very purpose of redemption was to make us a holy and righteous people before him to walk after his heart. How can I sin against my God? Think about that. That's the question. How can I sin against God? All that he's done for me. How can I betray him? We don't think enough about it. Well, number nine. When the heart is at war with sin, and you'll know, if you've got sin in your life, you're going to go to war with it. That's what mortification is. We're going to fight with it. We're going to do everything we can do to eradicate it from our life. When we are at war with sin, speak no peace to it until God tells you you can speak peace. But you've got to put on the whole armor of God every day in order that you can stand firm against the evil that is coming your way. And isn't that what Paul said? Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not something we're doing. We're doing it through him. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, 
against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to want, withstand in the evil day. That is when evil comes in that day to war against you. And having done all to stand. You gotta put on the whole armor of God. You only find that armor in the word of God, no place else. Do you want to avoid church discipline? You got to get a hold of your life. You've got to become a sanctified saint. Hey, you're not going to be perfect. I wish we would. But it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. You got to work at it. The Reformed faith is a very hard road to walk down because we don't give you excuses to jump off and not pursue righteousness. You've got a lot to do in the power of the Spirit of God to conquer sin in your life. I'll never ask you, are you perfect? I mean, unless you're really that smart and you think that you are, and, you know, naturally, you're going to have to ask that question. What I'm going to ask you is, is how's the war with sin in your life? That's the question. Well, I don't know. I'm not really warring with it. Then you've got a problem. Since you're not perfected, you got to be at war. You've got to be at war. Are you at war with sin? That's the question to ask today. Are you seeking to mortify your life? Are you seeking to put sin to death before sin kills you? and put you to death? Are you seeking to put on the righteousness of Christ, those works of the Holy Spirit, those good fruits that we've seen in Galatians? So, if you're seeing me up here and not Dr. Talbot, you've realized that the assistant pastors are returning back to our fourth Sunday in terms of circuits in regards to giving a uh, pastor uh, a break uh, and giving us an opportunity uh, to expound and be able to show our talent. And with that being said, I'm praying to God that I'm not rusty. <laughs> it's been approximately, I would say, eight months since I've been up here. So I'm still going to have fun with it. I'm still going to remember my P's and Q's. I'm still going to remember to enunciate. 
and I might avoid the word author. Maybe. Just maybe. <laughs> so I have the pleasure after we've explored First John, the epistle written by John the Apostle. I have the honor of actually starting the new book, which we'll be entering into, which is the Gospel of John. And as a good Presbyterian, as always, as you know, we should always have our clock ready and abled. Uh, but then also, believe it or not, I do not have a long title. I kept it simple. Now, I might get a pow-pow after this, because as a seminary student, you usually have a title and the subtitles. But believe it or not, I'm going to keep this particular sermon today simple. I title it The Gospel of John, The Intro. That should probably be on a t-shirt. Our scripture text for this intro actually will actually help put us in perspective of the journey that we're about to embark in fact, I am excited because to actually take on this challenge of expounding on the Gospel of John in particular, uh, we know things about the Apostle uh, that does not actually need to be said. But nonetheless, I hope by the end of the intro, I catch your attention as well. So if you have your Bibles, just for the intro today, our scripture text is Acts 17, 24 through 31. It reads, the God who made the world and everything that is in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in the temple made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist. And as even as some of your poets have said, for we are also his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. And verse 31, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Shall I look to the Lord our God now in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you have given us, Lord, and we are mindful that you have allowed us to be here in good health, and we want to take that for granted, Lord. So as your servant here is conveying the word, Lord, be with him as he conveys the liberties of Christ to his people, but then also let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive the word that's being spoken of, everything spoken by you. It is a showment of proof. Just as you've shown the apostles that their writings are continuing to comfort the church, let them know that the ministers up here are here to continue to counsel them. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. 
So, some of you might be thinking now, well, Pastor, that is pretty nice. You bought a Paulinian excerpt into your introduction into the Gospel of John. But is it relevant, though? And I'll respond, it actually is. You see, some people, and when I say some, I mean those who have a humanist tint in their ideology, see only what they can touch, sense, smell, and hear. In the world, it is always in a state of flux. And they say this because of all that they do and how they come about their day. But in the entirety that Acts 17 was conveying, especially with Paul speaking to the Athens, it's, it's amazing how he's able to bring closure to a world they thought or to something they thought was unknown. And the reason why I am stating it in the way that I am is because there is no, there can't be an understanding that there was no intent behind the gospel books. Now, think of it this way. We have the Acts written by Luke to show the work of the apostles and how the church had grown in its infancy. But Nowhere in the books of Acts do you ever read about them sitting down and writing the four books or the Gospels as we know them today. So there has to be intent. There has to be reason. And behind the reasoning is not speculation. It's actually an eye-opening experience into understanding the way our God actually works. Because you see, with the Gospels written the way that they are, we cannot think that our God is slack in comforting the church. So when I say that there was intent, I mean it because the way Paul was able to provide reasoning, logic, behind what they could not understand as the unknown, the Gospels now provide clarity, logic, reasoning for the church to understand the greatest event that transpired in modern in history. The God-man walked amongst his creation. So, I look at Calvin as he puts it. That the gospel being the ordinary declaration made by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is to proclaim that Christ has come. The Christians or the saints of the old was looking at types, copies, shadows, the major and minor prophets to know who is the Messiah. But the gospel was provided and is finally here to convey who he actually was. And therefore, we as a church should know we now have clarity. So, with that being said, and given that our Lord has arrived and fulfilled his roughly duties, and that he has risen and reigns, 
It now brings me to this particular portion of my intro. What point are we going to get through with this particular sermon? First, well, I have to answer the question. Why do we have Gospels? And then, secondly, what do we make of the four accounts? Are they authoritative enough? Of my first point, why do we have the Gospels? I'll look to another Pauline excerpt to answer this, this question. Romans 1, 2 through 4. He, being God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Simply put, the declaration made by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures is that for the church today, Christ has come. And unlike our brothers and sisters, like I pointed before in the Old Testament, who saw them through all the copies, shadows, types, and prophets, major and minor, we have the gospels to make known that he has arrived and the Messiah in no better way could have announced his presence. Luke 4, 17 through 21. And the scrolls of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. And he unrolled the scroll and he found the place from where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recover of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20 in Luke 4 states here, and he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant. <laughs> he sat down, and all the eyes of the people in the synagogue were intently directed to him. And what a way to make his presence known. He began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that is the church of that day. They had the Messiah readily and present. But I want to bring to you this. Of our life, and especially with our attention with the gospel, Let's take a trip down memory lane with some history. Now, I want to make this point because this is just an introduction. So, the term gospel actually has more of a Latin root. Now, mind you, <laughs> I don't want you to think throughout the universe or throughout the expansion of time, gospel always had the connotation that it's had today. In fact, if you really think about it, when you're coming to someone, you're telling them, I hear it bring good news. They're thinking, oh, your wife must be pregnant. Or you got some new cattle. So the term and cognitive uh, definition of gospel, it wasn't so much universal as we understood it. But that kind of conveys to you the power and the gravity that that event brought. And I don't want to underestimate that event because a lot of people 
when they hear gospel today, they're already automatically associated with Christianity. You come to your friend or some or another co-worker and he said, hey, I come to bring the gospel to you. Now in Rome, <laughs> they might have thought the same thing I was thinking of before when I told you earlier before Christ's arrival. But now note the power. Just one term has changed the definition in our vocabulary. Even the humanists acknowledge, you look at Britannica and the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, gospel means the salvation of the Lord. You know, you know a squirrel could find a nut every once in a while, right? But nonetheless, this term should not be, should not be lost in the way that it has moved throughout time. And with that, I want to make that notion across. That though we have humanists who would even say that you are talking about the gospel of Christ, that doesn't mean they believed. I can teach, as a scientist show today, a, uh, a monkey can say the word gospel. He can say various words. He might even be able to read the Bible. Who knows? But that doesn't necessarily mean he's been changed. There's not a revelatory work at hand. And this is why I keep trying to show you how the definition of the term gospel has been reshaped. Because what was once good news and you associated with things that were worldly now makes a formative shift, even to the point the humanist acknowledges it. And the term now doesn't just have the term that was once before. It means miracles. It means a change. It means God has come. And in the form of the God-man, he, and I cannot stress it enough, he Walked among his creation. And if he walked amongst his creation. It brings me now to my second point. We have four accounts. And of the four accounts. What do we make of them? Well. Solely and first. We should definitely credit this to the work of the spirit. In these four particular individuals. For what does our confession state in chapter 1, section 1c? It pleased the Lord at sundry times in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that what is his will unto his church. So, continuing down this thought process, let's look at Romans 3, 2. We can ensure that God then entrusted them to Extol the oracles of God. Romans 3, 2. Great in every respect, they were entrusted with the actual words of God. So what makes them now, what makes the gospel message authoritative? Now, surely all of them had to have been apostles, right? We have, throughout history, really 13. One decided to go crazy and hung himself. And the other one came in late, but he was on God's time. 
But what do we make of it? Surely they had all been apostles. Well, remember, to achieve this office, you would have seen the Christ. But yet, we have no scripture that Mark and or Luke saw or were part of his ministry. Now, do we? Can we still take it to be authoritative? In fact, can you say all the apostles were entrusted with the responsibility of conveying the gospel? Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, I bring this up because though Mark and Luke were not necessarily apostles in the sense of the term, but their closeness with the two apostles, Peter and Paul, respectively. We can now, especially since I used Romans 3, 2 as my premise to go forward with this thought, it should assure us that their account should be taken as truth. Mark, being the private friend and disciple of Peter, and Luke, the author of Acts, attended to Paul personally. If it's anything, Romans 3, 2 has given us insight to the authors that we should believe that they were properly qualified and divinely appointed witnesses as the Spirit directed them and guided their pens. Calvin states in his commentary, he states, those writers are chargeable with a want of precision. They interweaved the doctrine which relates to the office of Christ and informs us of what the nature of his grace and for what purpose he has been given to us. They were principally employed in showing that in the person of Jesus Christ, it has been fulfilled of what God had promised from the beginning. They had no intention or design to abolish by their writings the law and the prophets. But on the contrary, they point with the finger to Christ and admonish us to seek from him whatever is ascribed to him by the law and by the prophets. For this is the full Profit and advantage, therefore, it is to be derived from the reading of the Gospels. We will obtain what we learn as it connects to the ancient promises. Our Messiah is consistent, and especially for Calvin, I apologize, especially for Calvin to convey this, is consistent in this manner. Think of it. Do you remember Cleopas and his companion? They're on their way to the village. And this is after the Lord has died and rose. And he hides himself from them. He doesn't make himself known. And through the discourse, the Messiah asks, well, what's wrong? Why do you worry? Now I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but why do you worry? And they explained to him what transpired 
knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the man who was crucified, was a great man. And we heard about this wonder that all of a sudden they went to the tomb and no longer was the body there. <laughs> what does the Messiah say to them in Luke 24, 25 through 27? You foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken of. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to come to his glory? And what does our Lord do in kind? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. That is full and expected intention when we should see with the Gospels what it should be truly conveying. And like, like I said, I read from, I, I just wrote what, I'm sorry, I just read what Calvin stated in that same thought. Luke 24, 44 to 45 now shows that our Lord and Savior reappeared to the remaining 11 apostles. He said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, ladies and gentlemen, It's amazing that when somebody speaks, you can kind of decipher the ideology. You read. You can see where their thought process is kind of heading towards. But it's so it's so profound that as our Lord and Savior says, if I am not your foundation and rock, you will be swayed by anything and everything that comes your way. Matthew 7. But you see, in order to say this the way I'm saying it, I should know that with this, the Bible being the written word of God, the gospel stands as my source to know the very words of the Messiah. And you know what's cool? Especially because we're on the question of the four accounts, each one has a personality trait in their writings. The Spirit moved them to write the truth, but each one, in the way that they were dictated, has a very interesting imprint. Why do I say this? It brings me, really I wanted to save this as my third point, but I wanted to bring it all together because it's going to segue us next Lord's Day into why I consider the Gospel of John, not so much because it's universally known to be different, but there is a difference in the styling. There really is. Now, when you have a chance, do get a chance to listen to all 21 chapters. I believe it should take approximately about 15 minutes if you do it in one sitting and you have it done on the ESV version. I forget the author's name, but uh, he's pretty 
that actually. <laughs> the guy he does the spoken, the spoken word. But nonetheless, you can see and hear a different tint in how he's conveying the miracles, works, and life of Christ. Which is why I now come to now, since the Gospel of John is our context and subject, especially for this intro and where we're going to head to. How is his account different? Now, I already went when I did the introduction for the first book of John, and I did some historical context in there, so I don't really need to go down that pathway anymore. But I will definitely talk about something in regards to his life. New nuances that I learned. It is true. He was called to Christ at a very early age. And it could also be stated, especially since he it seemed to be the youngest of the bunch, there was this affinity, especially being the one disciple that Christ loved. He leaned on Jesus' bosom. And a detail of something like this could show you something that I don't think a lot of people can take a lot of credit for. When you say the word intimacy, it doesn't always need to be in a negative connotation. Because the intimacy really means there is a special closeness. Now, the humanist has taken that word and turned it strictly Hollywood so they can make a quick buck. But if you look at the root of the word, there is a sense of closeness that comes with it. And this apostle in credit, <laughs> especially when you get to chapter 21, because of a sense of comedy. That transpires <laughs> in regards to the dynamics that our Lord had with the remaining apostles and their questions and answers. <laughs> but you can see the gravity and the, the amount of intimacy he had with our Lord. And <laughs> because of this, I believe he was privy to some things the other Apostles weren't privy to. In fact, going back and just giving me some hindsight into the future, chapter 21, Peter states, Well, what about him? You're telling us how all our eyes are going to What about him? And the Messiah responds back, What's that your concern? <laughs> you want to talk about, like, oh, he's special. So there's a oneness that he's going to show in his gospel, there's an intimacy he's going to show. And it has to be. Because at probably at that age, especially with the Spirit moving him, there must have been, well, we, we say this in consistency, in the divine providence of God, the movement by which the Spirit moved on John, it was proper for the church. Especially the attention of this gospel. This attention of this gospel was... And from the historical perspective, to counteract the wicked blasphemies of Ibian and Serithius, who flat out denied the divinity of Christ by asserting he was a mere man and he did not exist before his incarnation. But do you remember my intro? And the amount of detail Paul provides in his sermon to the Athenians. And every word that I picked in that intro 
had intent. For you see, just as Paul made a point to the Athenians to tell them, oh, the world that you exist in does not start from where you think it starts. Remember I was telling you about that style that John takes in his gospel, he starts from the beginning. I mean, I cannot stress enough how the similarities between the way the first gospel of John starts and the way that Paul provides his gospel sermon to the Athenians is a show that you must understand from the beginning, he always existed. And the point of emphasis, verse 28 in chapter 17 of Acts, for in him we live and move and exist. In this world that we conceive, though I'm able to touch this podium, it exists in the mind of God. He is not far from where we are. Do not be slack to think for one second that if he stops thinking of you, you can, I don't even think you can imagine it. You just don't know what not existing actually look like. I'm being honest. In fact, if you read Genesis 1 through chapter 2 to verse number 7, in the seven days that he created the world, every single time he started, it states, God then, in the English, then God said. The power of his spoken word. And for great detail, once he said it and it came into existence, he gave it proper reasoning and he called it what he deemed perfect to call it. And don't think that the way he set up the days and the way he set them up with what he created in the order he created them was by chance. No, no, no. There was intention. And don't think when he created man, just because he created him on the sixth day, if I'm not mistaken, that he didn't have attention for him. Everything has order. Everything has reasoning and everything has logic. And that point of emphasis that I'm driving home here should be rock solid now for our foundation moving forward when we get to the book. And especially the first four verses. If you are familiar with the book in the Gospel of John. It's profounding and amazing, right? In fact, some people, when they hear me talk, they said, man, you sound like a very intellectual guy. How do you know all this? 
And I'm like, man, if you only knew, I feel like I only know 1% of a large body of work. <laughs> if you only knew. But in my amazement, John, in scripture it testifies, he wasn't a trained or learned man. Acts 4.13. Now they observe the confidence, confidence, the boldness at which the Spirit enlightened Peter and John. Now they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. But they were amazed and recognized and began to recognize to began to recognize them as having been with the Lord Jesus. I cannot stress enough how coming to the Bible, one, we should definitely have the intent of wanting the Spirit to enlighten us. Because a humanist can come to the Bible and a Christian can come to the Bible. They're both able to read and they see words on a paper. But what makes the humanist and the Christian different? For the humanist, it's just words on paper. For the Christian, the words come to life. And by the revelatory work of the Spirit, they have now in better detail of what God's intention are, what his will is for his people, and how he is continually with you. And what better way than to segue to a conclusion by saying to you that the definition, the intention of the gospel book itself, Calvin puts it here, it is in it. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1, 16. And by this display of God's righteousness, and by the embassy, that is the gospel. God is able to reconcile men to himself with Christ as the pledge of the mercy of God. So when we get to the book, we're going to see his miracles. We're going to see his dealings. We are going to see his works. We're going to see him pray. We're going to observe his emotions and how he deals with the humanists, how he deals with his own people. We're going to see mercy. We're going to see love. We're going to see truth. And we're going to see comfort. We're going to see some comedy. But most of all, we're going to see God's will for his people. And with the Gospel of John, I can assure you that just as their intent was to show everything points back to Christ, through this expository journey that we're about to go through, we should have comfort knowing good and well how God is continuing to comfort his church by having Christ as their federal head and united to him 
one-to-one in love. Shall we pray?